movies by minutes. Project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Well, howdy, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute podcast, where every week for several weeks, you guys have been kicking back, relaxing, listening to several Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Silverado, a classic Western from 1985. We've been breaking down this movie one minute of screen time per episode, and I get the final minute. I have got to apologize we tried to work it out, and I am not making this up. For those of you who don't know anything about my co-host, Walt Murray, he is a private detective. Yes, like the TV shows kind of private detective, only it's nothing like the TV shows. I got, <laughs> I got a message from him today. He said, I know you're not going to believe me, <laughs> but we have got so many clients that have come in in the last few weeks. I'm going to have to go on surveillance. We have a client, we think we know where they are, but we've got to get it on video and we are just too thin and so I have to get out there and actually do some grunt work. <laughs> I said, "Dude, you get more stories and have more fun doing that. I'm going to be sitting in my studio. I'm going to be wrapping up the movie. I think everybody totally gets life happens. And I think everybody here in this podcast community, we love what we do. We don't get paid for it. We don't make anything. Uh, or maybe we get a modicum of support from our individual shows, which is great. And I'm not in any way poo-pooing that because it is important because, you know, sometimes you need that little bit of extra to keep the hosting alive and keep the website going and maybe even compensate for some of the hours you stay away from your family, your wife, your husband, whatever. We have, first and foremost, a passion for film a passion for movies. We love talking about these things. And what I like about this format is it gives us a chance to slow a movie down that we truly love and really analyze it, really look at it from a perspective of how many pieces go together to make one piece of magic happen. So I am with you by myself today as we wrap up. Now, we do go movies by minutes. This minute is a little bit longer because of the credits. We don't. It doesn't make sense to break out a couple of minutes of credits. We've talked about so many of the people from the beginning. So many folks along the way have talked about these actors, about background, performers. Some people have talked about set designers and decorators, directors, writers, the composer, and all of the other elements of the movie. So let's break down this final minute and then spend some time chatting about Silverado as a wrap-up. And it is my pleasure, and I say thank you again to the Grand Poobah, Jim O'Kane, from Stately Kane Manor, who put together this concept of a smorgasbord of movies by minutes podcasters to break down a collaborative project. This is the fifth one he's helped coordinate, the third of which I've been involved with and just so enjoy getting a chance to sample all of the different folks out there with their podcasts, get a sense of their voices, how they approach the, the, the subject matter. I want to do a quick shout out. I know I had a list at the beginning of the week, and then I found out the list has been tweaked a little bit over the last uh, couple of months as the show has evolved. So I went by the initial uh, email, and I think I made a point of telling everybody I did not want to listen to a single minute of anybody else. I wanted to wait until everything that I had to record was done and in the books, so that way I would come at this fresh 
If I ended up mirroring somebody's thoughts, well, that was purely coincidental. If I ended up going against somebody else's thoughts, well, once again, coincidental. These are all my thoughts going through the film, looking at it, analyzing it, seeing it from the perspective of a filmmaker and also from an actor and from a director, from a writer. In my background, I have all three. I'm a writer, actor, director. And so I really love trying to, it's almost like my version of film school, to go through these and try to determine, well, how did they set this up? How did they make this happen? Why does this work? I've seen a similar shot in other movies where that movie's not good. Why is this one good? So because of that, I wasn't aware that some of the names had changed along the way. So let me give you the most updated breakdown of everyone who came before me. I know it's at the beginning. I don't want to bore anybody. We'll move along in the minute. But I think everybody who gave of their time for this project is worth at least a shout out. And if you didn't know, if you only came to these minutes because you knew me, you knew Walt, or maybe because you just wanted to check out the end of the flick, well, here's a chance for you to learn about all of the names of the people who have been involved since the very beginning. We started off with the Malkovich Malkovich Minute. We also had the Minutia X Minute folks, followed by Brett Stillo and Josh Horowitz. The Marine Corps Movie Minute, the Devil Dogs of Marine Corps Movie Minute. We had the Minute Impossible folks, some great, great guys talking about the Tom Cruise franchise there. The Deep Blue Sea Minute podcast. We have David Smith, who's been involved with several of our episodes, and we have had a chance to guest on some of his shows. The Indiana Jones Minute, Jones! The triumvirate of those three, always a lot of fun. Edge of Tomorrow Minute, Brian Lockhart took some additional time. He's with the Marine Corps Movie Minute, but he did some time as well as Sean and Brian German. We had the Bull Durham Minute, and a little shout-out to Kevin Costner on that one. Jim O'Kane has done the Rocketeer in Apollo 13 Minutes, and so he was involved in part of this ensemble project. Movie Rob Minute, my buddy from Israel, who's already given me a couple of shout-outs since the episodes went live. Thanks, Movie Rob. Alice Lauren, Real Jaws Minute, The MASH Minute, also Watchmen Minute, Two Minute Terminator, Dean O'Carroll, Mark Campbell and Jason Allman, Dave Pallas and Tabitha Carlisle, and then we wrap up with me, Alan Sanders, part of a duo, a co-host team for The Wilder Ride. So let's get into the minute. When we last left, the goodbyes were continuing on. We last had... Augie, JT, and Kate sitting in the wagon. They were just sitting there. We had Jake on his horse on the one side, and we had Emmett facing them. And he basically said, take care of your folks. And he said, I will. And that's where we last left. We had a sense that uh, Scott Glenn was now going to turn his horse around and that maybe they were all going to ride off together. As they begin to trot away, the music is still low and slow, almost serene to help match the background. And as they trot away, the camera slowly turns to follow them. And suddenly, Jake over his shoulder leans back. They're still riding. And he yells, which is how we've ended every episode with... Somebody's back! It does make you wonder if Lawrence Kasdan and his brother were planning on a sequel. Was that just a wink and a nod, knowing that there wasn't a plan for a sequel? The box office receipts weren't fantastic for this movie. I mean, we... I think I discussed at the beginning, I know others have along the way, 
that Westerns weren't exactly in vogue in 1985. I mean, the, the Westerns just come and go, and they're still that way. There's not many Westerns that, uh, it's not the genre that dominates the screen. According to uh, the, the numbers at Box Office Mojo, the film grossed $32 million domestic. Now, that was on a $23 million budget, so it did technically make back the cost of the budget, but for folks who are in the filmmaking world, there's sort of a rule of thumb, especially with bigger movies. This isn't the the, the formula for every film, but certainly your blockbusters. The rule of thumb has always been whatever the budget was to make the movie, you could almost always double that, and that's what the studio spends on marketing, promotion, distribution, from magazine ads to billboards to, especially when you think about international distribution, changing the language, changing the posters, you could almost always double the budget. So if it was a $23 million budget for Silverado, and they did that sort of one-to-one comparison for the PR and marketing for the film, you're looking at about $46 million dollars. So if you've spent a sum total of $46 million, maybe we'll round it down just because at that time, maybe it was about more like $40, $45 million. You grossed $32 million. You didn't exactly cover all of the costs. You covered your budget to make the movie, but you may not have made any money back. And unfortunately, that often is what's going to determine whether or not you get a sequel. Sometimes you're allowed. The studio will take a risk on a director, a talented script, where they feel like something just didn't click with the audience, but maybe we could do a sequel. Sometimes it just goes the way of the dodo. And sometimes a movie like this, thanks to VHS, and I mean, here we are, not quite 40 years, about 37 years later, as of the time we're recording this, looking back at a film from the mid-'80s, Obviously, it's had legs. Obviously, it's grown a a following and a fan base. People are still discovering this movie for the first time. Projects like this bring people to those movies for the first time. So who knows? I've got an interesting bit of, uh, of information that I just dug up about Silverado to wrap up. But before we do that, because as you hear him yell, we'll be back. They start the ride, and I was hoping it would be into the sunset, but it's not exactly. It's it's one of those tropes that shifts on the edge. You get the sense that they are, in fact, riding toward a little bit of a where two ridges are kind of coming together to form a, a kind of a dip in the horizon. Then you've got mountains with some snow in the background. I mean, New Mexico is beautiful. This was filmed entirely on location in New Mexico. I'm sure other people have covered that, and it is gorgeous. And so it's not necessarily into the sunset, but we have to remember, for whatever reason, Lawrence Kasdan and crew decided to film in the winter. It took about 96 filming days to lock this movie down. So the last, from about second six or seven, when he's yelling, we'll be back, and then he turns around by the time we get to about second nine, they are just riding off, and the score kicks in, and the credits start to roll, and it's one of those things where the movie is still rolling in the background with the credits on top. Now, I, w- I do want to talk just a moment about how I enjoy the credits, and I think when I rewatched the credits, it helped inform me to my concerns as a kid, and then I mentioned in the beginning of the week how it all kind of comes together in my mind now that these guys wanted to capture as many tropes of the Western, as many different kind of story threads and lines and try to do an homage to them. Sort of a Western that's aware of the Westerns that have come before it. And so what I like is as the credits are rolling, 
We initially get our four main lead characters. We get Peyton, Emmett, Jake, and Mal, played by Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner, Danny Glover. But then the credits roll in location order. And I think that's an interesting choice to remind us that this story evolved over multiple locations as though the credits themselves are traveling on their way to Silverado, just like our characters did over the last two hours and 13 minutes. You start off with the cavalry outpost, then you go to the town of Turley. We then get the wagon train. We get the folks who are looking for that new land, that place to call their own. We get the Box Canyon Outlaws, where they have that little raid to try to get the money back for the folks who are on the wagon train. And then we eventually spill into Silverado. So we do get the credits broken down by those locations. Then we get the teams of people. We get McKendrick's men broken down, followed by the stunt coordinator, stunt personnel, and it rolls on from there. If you want to watch all the credits, please do. The music is great. The score is great. I didn't get a chance to talk about the music at all during the course of this production. I found myself striking the balance between it sounds like something maybe written for television, and then suddenly it has a pseudo-John Williams-esque sound from like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe the use of the horns, the heroic sounds, the fact that we do have the heroic Silverado theme for when the guys are together and a deconstruction of the same theme as they go their separate ways. And then there's another sort of familiar theme when it has to do with the wagon train or the sense of family or the familiar, the sense of the the pastoral, the prairie you get. So these two different themes that are constantly reused throughout the film. I knew it wasn't John Williams, but at the same time, I felt like there was a call out or a shout out from Bruce Broughton who was this, the composer. And actually, he earned an Academy Award nomination for this for this film. Didn't win. The two Academy uh, nominations that Silverado did get was for Best Sound and for Best Score. And the sounds for the 1985 were incredible. All the guns had unique sounds to their guns. The horses, the, 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 the sound of the elements, the, the cattle stampede. Everything that happened in this film, the crossing of the wagons across the river, fording these rivers, trying to get to the other side, as many of the early settlers on the Oregon Trail would have had to do. I, I, the sound design was really, really good, and the music was good. I think in some ways, because it is a mid-'80s movie, Sometimes there's a little too much music. I think I'm in that point in my movie watching where I think it's okay to have some quiet. It's okay to not necessarily have heroic trumpets every time uh, one of our characters gets on a horse and starts to ride. But at the same time, it wasn't distracting. It didn't pull me out of the movie. Some movies I've noticed when I go back and look at an older movie, I'm like, okay, stop. Stop with all the synth pop. Stop with all of the, uh, the saxophone or the guitar. You know, I mean... Let it breathe. Let's have some room. And I think maybe the reason that's okay is because Lawrence Kasdan directs this film where actors do have a chance to pause. They do say a lot with just their facial expression. There is time for it to breathe, and I think that works. And so not a, not a negative, other, I think it's just a product of its day in the mid-'80s to have a lot more music or at least more of the theme over and over and over. And I think that's why it felt almost like it could have been a television kind of made for TV soundtrack or score, but it does work on the big screen. And I do like the music. It is very heroic. It has that Western feel. So I did want to do a shout out to Bruce Broughton. And in fact, 
give you some music as we are heading to the uh, the end here. I'll definitely do that as we uh, as we sign off. I want you to hear some of that besides the the piece of where you hear Jake and Emmett riding off and screaming back over the shoulder that they'll be back. I did find this interesting that this entire town of Silverado, or at least the set, including all the other set pieces around it that they could use by hiding and creatively shooting, were really built. They were really built. There was a true town, and it's been used in a number of films. I think between television and films, it's been used a lot. Some of the big ones would be Young Guns, Wyatt Earp, Last Man Standing, Wild Wild West, ironically Kevin Klein in that. It was built with 40 buildings, it was 25 miles just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's it's amazing that the that the studio decided to invest in a piece of property to build all of the buildings. Now a lot of them are just frames and just the basics, but a lot of those set pieces were built with cutouts and carveouts so you could pull walls, you could film things in a different way, you could create almost mini sound stages to try to prevent some of the outside noise from coming in for some of your inside shots. So they really built a mini studio slash town for Silverado. Took them about 12 weeks, by the way, to build that entire town. They had to battle the elements. It was winter. They were dealing with snow. They were dealing with 60-mile-an-hour winds, those Santa Fe winds. And so these actors went through a pretty harsh filming condition when it came to temperature and it came to the elements. And I think all of them maybe just a sense and appreciation of what it was like to be a cowboy, to be on the prairie, to be out there battling the West, to be part of that movement westward from all of the established towns in the East, to try to take that chance with the elements, with weather, with areas of the country you have never seen before. One of the things I discovered about Scott Glenn, who I said just embodies this this character, the cowboy, the the rider on on the plains so well, I had no idea he didn't really have a concept of how to ride a horse when he started. They brought the, the, the cast was brought out and trained for weeks ahead of time of shooting with a true livestock coordinator. Same person who was responsible for over 500 cattle that were used in the movie, including the stampede, 100 horses and other animals for depending where they were, like chickens and pigs and other kind of farm animals. The guy, the main character, the main coordinator, Corky Randall, He and his team spent an additional four weeks doing nothing but working with the cast on the art of horseback riding and how to make the film look as authentic as possible. And Scott Glenn, I think, had I not known that, I would have never known. He looked like, and he just carries himself like somebody who like, oh, of course he, he grew up, he had to have grown up around horses. He's, nope. He learned how to ride thanks to this movie. Now, one of the things I also discovered, because it was really bugging me, it was bothering me, this unexplained love triangle that I just can't put my finger on when I'm only looking at this film. So I decided to spend a few days digesting that before knocking out this final episode. And I did what I think any good researcher or curious individual, is I decided to look for things like the script, or at least a final shooting script. We always know that it's never exact. Things happen. Directors change their minds. Actors improv lines. Things are written and rewritten from the blessed final script that the studio signs off on. But one of the things I discovered is there was about 20 or 30 minutes worth of outtakes. The film in its first cut was about two hours and 51 minutes long. And unfortunately for Rosanna Arquette, 
the decision when they started to cut the film together was this this subplot, this this love triangle just seemed to slow the movie down. It seemed to muddy the movie down. It felt out of place. And so that's where a big chunk of the outtakes come from. They took Rosanna's story completely down to the bare bones. In fact, one of the scenes I just found out that ended up on the cutting room floor did in fact become a much bigger implication of this romantic relationship between Hannah and Peyton. Now we know that, we sense that, it just feels so weird because so much has been stripped out of that subplot. It just feels like that's the weak story. And I do think if you were to go ask Lawrence Kasdan or his brother who worked on the script together, I get the feeling that they would tell you that that was probably the hardest thing to do to cut it down like that because by filming her, and I know how it feels. I've been involved in a film where I was involved in several days of shooting and the director decided, you know, the test audience didn't like this ending. We're going to shoot a completely different ending. And that was the one place where I was. And so I didn't make it in the film. And so I get it. Rosanna Arquette, I'm sure, you know, it's great to get paid. It's great to work with everybody, but let's face it. You have a little bit of ego as an actor. You want to see yourself on screen. And I have a feeling that the Kasdan brothers would have said, you know, we probably should have taken one more pass at the script and recognized it's a little too thick. We have a little too much here that we could probably cut. The easiest, cheapest cuts of any film are on paper. When you get, when you have the script in hand, if you can look at it and you start calculating shooting days and time and effort and all the stuff that goes into it, you say to yourself, do we really need it? Does it advance the story? Does it help the story? Do we already have elements somewhere else? Are we copying something somewhere else? How do we keep it moving? I bet if you were to get the Kasdans together, they would probably, maybe not maybe not on the record, but maybe wink and a nod, say to you, you know, we probably should have thought that character through a little bit more. It's a bit of a disservice to Rosanna Arquette. She gets high credits considering she's not in the movie all that much. One of the things that I knew, because I'm a big Monty Python fan, I, I became a Monty Python fan when I was a lot younger. I had no idea what I was watching. And then uh, I had a chance, one of my first jobs, I worked for a guy who just eat, sleeped, and breathed anything to do with the Monty Python crew, the actors. I, I just He would introduce me to that sense of British humor, and I still to this day gravitate so much to that style of humor, that British style of comedy. Did you know that it was intentional when John Cleese, when he first shows up on screen as Sheriff Langston, and he's, what's all this then? If you are even remotely familiar with any of the Monty Python sketches, that was almost always when Cleese would play one of the Bobbies, one of the English police officers showing up on a scene, whatever the sketch, whatever the skit, he would show, what's all this then? <laughs> and so I crack up every time he does it because it's not over the top. It's not like how he does it for Flying Circus, but if you're aware of that line, it's so funny. It's so funny to me. Like, oh, a little Easter egg for folks who maybe in 1985 still didn't know who the Monty Pythons were, who the Flying Circus guys were. And so uh, I, I love it. I love that. And finally, I think uh, this is interesting. I did read this online when I was doing my research. The line we are just now talking about, the last line that just went by, we'll be back, shouted by Kevin Costner's Jake as he and Emmett are riding off. A lot of people 
believe that it was meant to be an indication that there would be a sequel on its way. Now, we know there isn't. There hasn't been. There's not been talk of one. But did you know that uh, at one point in time, Silverado was voted as the film that is most deserving of a sequel in a nationwide poll right around the year 2000. Just around the turn of the century, people were being asked, okay, if you could go right now and and make a sequel to any movie out there, any movie that you think deserves part two, what would it be? And that one particular survey said all these people said, look, why doesn't Silverado get a sequel? We want to see what goes on next. We want to see what the next adventures are of these guys. I can tell you Lawrence Kasdan, who did help polish off the script for Return of the Jedi after a phenomenal script with Empire Strikes Back. I know it's been it had to have been mentioned multiple times by other folks prior to me getting into this project. I know Lawrence Kasdan is very much in that mindset of you tell a good story, you don't need a sequel. You move on to the next project. But I think being asked to polish a script or help with a story that's already been thought of in a three-act structure, just three individual films, that's a little different. In this case, Lawrence Kasdan came up with the idea, came up with the story. He and his brother, hearkening back to the days when he and his brother loved those kind of typical Westerns on TV, learning about the West, watching those movies. And I think that's why so many of those tropes are in here. It's like their love letter to the West. And so that's why we have these different threads, which is why it sometimes feels a little scattered and yet somehow still works toward the end. So I do think that uh, they are happy with the fact that it was just a single, a single movie, a single story. But it is interesting how fans were hoping that that line was sort of an Easter egg to us that, hey, we're going to get a sequel. There's going to be another one. Nope. And as far as I know, and I didn't find any research on this, nobody that I'm aware of is thinking about rebooting this on the, the, the streaming services. But one could argue that in our current age, in the age of anything's open for a reboot or re-exploration, in the age of getting ready for a Willow series or a prequel series to the Game of Thrones or starting to see other things that are being talked about as Hollywood-level budgets, but for the small screen, because so many people have home theaters, have wide, big, big widescreen TVs. So, so many of these projects are being thought of as episodic series. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe here it is. You're listening to this however many years down the road, stumbling across it simply because the Silverado series has decided to launch on some as yet to be thought of streaming service or maybe one of the classics, maybe Netflix or Disney Plus or or Amazon Prime or whichever has stuck it out and uh, managed to stay around for however many years in this war of for entertainment and for your entertainment dollars. Maybe somebody will do a Silverado series. Honestly, I like having a standalone movie. I do enjoy the fact that we here we are 37 years at the time of this uh, this project, 37 years later, looking back going, what an amazing film, a film that has stood the test of time, a film that we want to go back and rewatch and we want to talk about. We want other people to discover. We're excited to talk about it with other people. We find people who are like, you've never seen Silverado and you want to recommend it. So to be involved with this project and all of the people that came before me is incredible. And I am just thankful and humble to be just a small part of the final minutes of this production that started back in February of this year, dropping episodes and going all the way through to the, to the late summer, heading into fall. 
it's kind of nice that here we are. We know that these guys filmed in the winter, in the cold, and uh, we're closing out summer. It's still hot in much of the country, but we are starting to move into those. The days are getting shorter, which means the nights are getting longer. The cold is coming. Fall is my favorite time of year, ironically, followed by winter, then spring. Summer is my least favorite because I just get sick of the heat after a certain amount of time. Maybe it's because I live in the southeast. I have had a blast. I've had an absolute blast with each and every one of you who took time to listen. I don't know that I've gotten everything right. I'm sure I didn't get everything wrong. I'm sure that like everything else, the truth somewhere is in between. If in any way you find that you were interested about this movie because of these minutes or any minutes, let us know. Reach out to us. I know almost everybody in this kind of podcast world We love engaging with our listeners, love engaging with people, regardless of when you discover this particular episode. It could be years from now. It's always a joy when somebody stumbles across something like this because the content kind of is evergreen. You know, I try very hard when I'm talking about movies to not necessarily laden them with a bunch of current events of the day because it's not germane to the discussion. I want to keep it moving. I want to keep it about what we're seeing on the screen, what I'm observing, what I think it means, and what I what I noticed, what maybe you didn't notice, or maybe you did. And I think that's what's a lot of fun about doing a project like this. So if there were things we left out, if there were things that we got wrong, or if there was something you found, hey, wow, that is really cool. I didn't know that. Well, let us know. One final thing before we drop off. I know I mentioned this in the first episode, but I wanted to look it up because I said... So many Westerns, one of the main tropes is this high noon draw in the streets, two guys facing off mano a mano, one's going to walk away, one's going to be dead. It's such a Hollywood thing. In the Old West, I knew there was really only one true gunfight that had been documented that has now been turned into this trope for every Hollywood TV show, movie, even loosely based Westerns like Mandalorian or others where it's a Western in space. There was only one reported duel, very much like what happened here in Silverado, and that involved two people. One, a name that most people have heard of, even if they don't know anything about Western history, and that was Wild Bill Hickok. And it was a duel between Wild Bill Hickok and Davis Tutt. And it was over a a charge of gambling, go figure, uh, arguing over who's cheated who. In this case, Wild Bill was gambling with Davis Tutt and thought he had the better hand toward a long, a long gambling stretch. Decided, he goes, you know what? I don't have any more money, but I got my pocket watch. I'm going to bet my pocket watch. And Davis Tutt said, sure, go ahead, let's do it. Hickok lost. Now, Hickok was upset about that, but he didn't start anything at that point. He said, you know what? I love that watch. I'm going to get myself some money. I'll see you, and I want to give you the money, and then that way I can get my watch back. And so he did. He went and got the money to try to pay off his gambling debt to Davis Tut. Unfortunately for for Hickok, Tut decided... No, I got Wild Bill's watch. I beat him. I beat him in cards. I'm going to be able to show this to my buddies. Wild Bill's like, no, no. I've got your money. I want my watch back. And he goes, well, if you want your watch back, you're going to have to take it off of my cold, dead body. So that's what happened. Hickok says, all right, I'll see you in a bit. Later, comes out. One guy comes out of one building. 
And he realizes here's Wild Bill coming out of another building and they're squaring off in the center of the street and they decide to draw. And what we do know, very much like Silverado, is we don't know officially, officially, you can make an inference, but we know that both men shot. But when the smoke cleared with each one firing around, Davis Tut had been shot through the heart, fell down dead, not a scratch on Wild Bill Hickok. And it looked like the shot that supposedly Davis Tut fired didn't come anywhere close because it's very possible that Hickok was just fast enough that the hit of the bullet striking Tut made his aim go awry. But I talked to a Western historian. He said, outside of that, he said, nobody goes into a gunfight without every advantage on their side. Like you, unless it's one of those things that breaks out suddenly in gambling where somebody draws quicker than the other, nobody decides to play pistols at dawn in the Old West. If you're a lawman going to arrest somebody, you likely have your gun already out, cocked, and ready in case things go awry. You duck, you run, you don't sit there and make yourself a target. But we love it. Hollywood loves it. Everybody knows the drama behind it. So I thought, it, I thought it was interesting that when I researched the, the one and only instance that we know in true Western history, very much mirrored the kind of duel we ended up getting between Cobb and Payton to start off this week, this final week of this project, the Silverado Minute podcast. So with that story, everybody in the audience, regardless of where you come from, where you've been, where you're going, thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this project to listen to all of the voices breaking down this movie one minute of the film at a time. What I would strongly, strongly encourage you to do is if you like this in any way, you found it just interesting enough to go, hey, there are people out there who love movies so much that they're willing to break them down and talk about them. Everyone, there is no roadmap on how to do it right or wrong. Everyone's got their unique taste and flavor and delivery. Some you may like, some you may not, but there are hundreds and hundreds of Movies by Minutes projects that you can go out there and check out, and I would certainly encourage you to check out all of them from all of the different talented teams that put out Movies by Minutes. You just visit moviesbyminutes.com, it's plural, moviesbyminutes.com, and always keep checking back for more shows added to that ever-growing list. You can also, of course, get the Silverado podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or visit the website, silveradominute.com. You can also engage with any of these folks on social media. There is a special group. It's called the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listeners Saloon. Find it on Facebook. You just do a search for that under a group. You'll find it and then like it, and then you'll be able to browse it. You can go to each episode. You can add a comment, and then hopefully those individuals, plus Jim O'Kane, who's the coordinator of this will be able to respond to you and you can find us on twitter at silverado mxm from movies by minutes folks if you want to learn more about me and walt murray from the wilder ride it's so simple it's the wilder ride everywhere including any podcatchers out there we're on facebook twitter instagram all under the wilder ride for gene wilder and you can go to the wilderride.com i always know how to open a show it's always a little strange closing a show. I don't know if I've said enough. I don't know if I've covered enough. 
I always feel like I just want to hang out just for a little bit more. I don't want it to end. I want to write another scene or figure out another reason to keep us here to keep shooting. But you know what? The movie is done. The credits have finished. The lights have come up in the house. That doesn't mean we don't get to watch the movie again. You can at any point put that film in. You can stream it, find it, maybe you own it. That's the beauty of movies. And I think it's one of those things that does connect so many of us as human beings, regardless of anything else in our lives, where we've come from, our certain beliefs on certain subjects. We can sometimes, it's kind of like sports, it's music, movies is the same way, entertainment. You throw all of that outside baggage away for just that moment in time and you get lost in the story, the characters, what's happening, the narrative, and you get a chance to maybe even vicariously pretend you're somebody else for just a minute. Maybe one minute at a time. Take care, everybody. Enjoy whatever trails you happen to be on. One of the favorite cowboy sayings is happy trails. I'm going to wish you all a speedy ride, good weather, happy trails, wherever you might be going. Until next time, folks, take care. Oh, and just one more thing. We'll be back next season. Check it out. The Bowfinger Minute coming to season six of the Movies by Minutes project. Watch for the first episode to drop on February the 6th of 2023. 